Right, everyone. Good evening. Let it be known that I am still, in fact, a staff member in good standing at West Hills Church. I have not left. I have not been excommunicated. I'm still here. I'm still very much alive and still very much kicking. I just have a lot of friends that are out here getting married. That's what happens when you're in your mid to mid to late 20s. It's just, so you just wanted to be with the good people of the Bible Belt. Yeah, yeah the good people of the Bible Belt. Yeah, Greenwood, Mississippi. Uh, you're not missing much if you've never been there. I'll just leave it at that. Well, we are now embarking upon our third entry into a five-book series that we have sort of internally labeled. And by internally labeled, I mean me and Scott said it one time, and I have just decided to hang on to it. Uh, these inner circle epistles, the letters to the churches written by those men who were closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry. We began with the two epistles of Peter. Peter is a fisherman, he's a preacher, and he's a pastor, and that shines through in his writing. He's direct, he's helpful, he's simple. In Peter's first epistle, he dealt with the believer's hope of glory that sustains their livelihood in the trials and tribulations of this life. We might summarize the first letter of Peter with this title, Walking the Road from Suffering to Glory. Peter's second epistle deals with false teachers who have infiltrated the church and begun propagating teaching that Jesus is not, in fact, coming again. This teaching removes hope and assurance that Christ will return for his church and gives wicked people license to sin without fear of future judgment. Peter deals with a specific false teaching in 2 Peter while also demonstrating principles of how to deal with false teaching in general. We now move to 1 John. And perhaps surprisingly, John takes up some similar themes in dealing with false teaching. John is writing to address other types of false teaching and other types of unethical behavior. And he continues to reinforce the principles that Peter taught us in his second epistle. Now, John's first letter is notorious for being very difficult to outline and being without a central theme or main message. And many so-called scholars have accused John's first letter of essentially being a stream of consciousness without a real direction or flow and without a real sense of purpose. However, I think that John's message and his intent and his purpose is very clear The problem is people fail to understand John the man and John the author. And so tonight, as much as I would have liked to jump right into chapter 1, verse 1, I thought we better deal with some introductory issues, and the introductory issues fascinated me so greatly that I realized we would not get into the actual text, but that we would instead look at 1 John as a whole. Look at it from chapter 1 to chapter 5 and deal with some of these bigger picture issues flying maybe at 10,000 feet instead of at six feet and dealing with the overall message of first John what is the what are the central ideas that John is trying to communicate so what I want to do tonight is give us the roadmap before we begin the journey since we're living in 2023, plug the address into our phone and see the blue line of the route of where we're going to be going 
with John. And my intent for tonight is to hopefully get to know First John as a whole and get to know John the man and John the author so that we can better understand what he writes, what he intended for his original audience, and what the Spirit intends now for us. With all that being said, I'm going to do something that we've not done, but I think is entirely appropriate given the length of the letter. I'm going to read 1 John to you in its entirety as we begin tonight, and then we will discuss some of the points on your outline this evening. So if you would turn to 1 John, it is, as you would expect, the letter before 2 John, if you're trying to find it in your Bible. And Godspeed and good providence to you, trying to find 2 John and 3 John, as they're the two shortest books in the entire Bible. So it's towards the end, after 2 Peter, appropriately. Let's read 1 John together this evening. Listen as I read. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. 
Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or known him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, and nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of whom you have heard that it is coming and now indeed is already in the world. You are from God little children and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world they are from the world therefore they speak as from the world and the world listens to them we however are from God he who knows God listens to us he who is not from God does not listen to us by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, how then ought we to love one another? No one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. 
The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and in this, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, He shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So reads the word of the true and living God through the pen of his servant, John the Elder. So let's get to know John. Who is he? When we come to a book of the Bible, that's one of the first questions we ought to ask out of the 40-ish men who wrote Holy Scripture Who wrote this book and what about them makes their contribution to the canon of God's word unique? We would do well to understand who John is so that we can understand why he writes, what he writes, the foundation, the background from which he brings us these words. So, Bible trivia time. What do we know about John? Anthony, what do we know about him? He was Jesus' disciple whom he loved. Yes, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Notably, John never mentions himself by name in his gospel, but we know that he appears when we hear this tag, the one whom Jesus loved. What else do we know about John? Fisherman, yeah. Just like Peter. Yeah, he was, young, he was on the younger side of the disciples. He was the younger of his two brothers and the youngest in this inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And uh, when Jesus was crucified, uh, he told John to take care of his mother. Yes. We know about John. I think he was lifted up to heaven. We don't. We don't know that. We have no record of John's death um, in the in the scriptures. We know that he was lifted up to heaven in the sense that he received the vision and revelation, um, but we don't know that that was the end of his life. Um, Ron. No, I was just going to add that, that uh, all the other apostles. Mm-hmm. They were all martyred, and John, uh, they had his grave. They had his grave in Ephesus. So mm-hmm. died in old age. Yeah, yeah. John was uh, John was um, at least according to early church tradition. Yes, the only apostle who was not martyred. I also heard um, that he was Jesus' cousin. Yes, he was Jesus' cousin. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his his. I believe. Don't quote me on this. You got to go to the Gospels and, and do the genealogies. But I believe um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then James and John's mother were sisters. 
if I remember correctly, don't quote me on that. I to go back to the gospel accounts and figure it out. Didn't that? They tried to boil him in oil to kill him. Yep. It's another uh, early church tradition. They tried to boil him in oil and that he didn't die. <laughs> so they threw him in prison instead. Mm -hmm. He was in prison for a while in Patmos. And that's God where... Himself yep. And gave him uh, the words to write Revelation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we know a lot about John. We have a lot of uh, both biblical data about him and data that comes to us from the traditions of the early church and the history that's contained therein. I think there's five things that are important for us to understand about John so that we can understand what he writes here in this letter. First, as we've mentioned, he was an apostle. What this means is that he was an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus and was commissioned, as we have said, often our sort of a definition of, a, of an apostle, is a messenger on a mission. He's a man who's been given a message from God and commissioned on a mission to go and declare that message. And what is the mission then and the message? Disciple the nations in grace and in truth. John's writing is therefore profoundly affected by this call to ministry. Second, John was an eyewitness of Christ. This comes out in the opening words of this letter as John uses vivid sensory language to describe his experience of Christ's ministry and resurrection. If you look at those words there in those opening verses, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Can you imagine that? That's the place where John is writing from as a man who with his own hands touched the glorified body of the risen Christ. Third, John was a prolific author. In terms of total bibliography, John is tied for second with all biblical authors for the, with the number of books written at five. He's tied with Moses, second only to Paul, and in terms of chapter count, only Paul surpasses John in the New Testament. If we want to understand John as he writes his first epistle, we also have to understand the other four books that John wrote. Gospel of John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. Fourth, John was an elderly author. We have reason to believe that John's five books were the last to be written in the New Testament canon towards the end of the first century. Tradition holds that John lived well into his 90s and likely wrote these letters at that time in his life. We are not reading the starry-eyed dogmas of a young man, but the wizened pastoral wisdom of an elder. Fifth, John writes as one of, if not the closest human companion of Jesus the Messiah. John plays a central role in all of the gospel accounts and is the one whom, as Zena said, commission, Jesus commissions to care for his mother after his death and ascension. He was one of only three to witness the transfiguration. The closeness of their relationship is perhaps illustrated most clearly by the private exchange between the two of them that is recorded at the Last Supper regarding the identity of the betrayer. John was the only disciple present at the cross and was the first disciple to enter the empty tomb. John's writing, even late in his life, is profoundly influenced by the close, personal, intimate relationship that he had with Jesus during his earthly ministry. All of these characteristics profoundly affect what John writes and what is close to his heart as he writes. So who does John write to? Who is his audience in this letter? Anybody want to take a stab from the text of 1 John as to who he's writing to? Christians? Little children. Little children? Ron? I was going to say it's a general 
epistle to all believers. It's a general epistle. Not once does he address his letter to a specific person, region, or church. Almost every other New Testament epistle, maybe with one or two exceptions, was written to someone. To the church at Rome. To the church at Philippi. First and Second Peter. To the churches of the dispersion. John doesn't address the letter to anybody. He just jumps right in. He's like the author of Hebrews, right? Instead of a normal epistolary greeting, Paul, an apostle of God in Christ Jesus to the church at Rome. Right? Peter, Simon, an apostle of God. Now how does the author of Hebrews start his letter? Long ago, at many times and in many ways. Right? It's very epic. It's very dramatic. And John's a dramatic guy. And you would understand John being, having a flair for the dramatic after all that he's seen recorded in the book of Revelation. Very dramatic. If you read the beginning of his gospel, it's very dramatic. It's not like, this is the record of Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, the son of, you know, and it goes on to a genealogy. No, in the beginning was the word. He's got a flair for the dramatic. And what that means is that he doesn't give us a specific audience. He doesn't say, hey, like the church at Galatia, who's dealing with all these crazy problems, and the church at Corinth, which is dealing with so many problems that Paul's got to write to them twice that's recorded and two more times that aren't recorded. It's a general epistle. It's written to the church at large. What this would seem to intend then is that John is writing for a broader, more general audience And if we follow the tradition of the early church and place the writing of this epistle at the very end of the canon, we can rightly surmise that John has become an eyewitness to the worldwide spread of the church. He has likely observed the church in Rome, the veritable capital of the world at that time, receive Paul's letter and then be influenced by his ministry during his imprisonment there, and then seeing the influence of Peter in the city as well. He has seen the impact Timothy has had in Ephesus and another prominent city. He has seen the ministry of the other apostles and early church leaders fulfill the commission recorded by Luke in Acts 1 to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. John, more than any other apostle, was able to witness the global broadening of the church and therefore understands the value of a letter not written to a specific local church, but written to what the old church fathers called the Catholic Church, small c, the universal church, the church of God over the whole world. What John presents here are, in a unique way, universal principles for the church. And as we will see over the course of this study, John's primary concerns are concerns that ought to come to bear upon the church in every area and in every age. Things like the centrality of love for God, love for the brethren, fulfillment of the law, the importance of Christ's humanity and deity, the hope of the beatific vision, and much more are wrapped up in these timeless five Chapters. Author, audience, purpose. Why does John write? Why does he write the things that he does? Oftentimes when reading a letter in the New Testament, the purpose statement can be hidden or obscured, and it's rather rare for Paul or Peter or even James to come right out and say, this is why I write to you. You have to search for it, and you have to find it in the flow of thought. If you search hard enough, it's there. The purpose statement is always there. John, on the other hand, gives you at least four, some people might count up to six, explicit purpose statements in the book of 1 John, where he says flat out, this is why I'm writing to you. So there's at least four. You might argue that there's more. One, three. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. This letter is the proclamation. We are proclaiming these things to you. We are giving these things to you. We are preaching these things to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Purpose number one, so that you may have fellowship with us. Why does John write? For the purpose of fellowship. We'll get more into that in just a moment. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The very next verse, 1-4. 
These things we are writing so that our joy may be made complete. Chapter 2, verse 1. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Here's a bonus fifth one wedged here in the middle. 2.26, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Four, five, six, somewhere in their purpose statements in here that really form the foundation, the pillars, and help guide us, give us some lamps as we walk along the path to understand what is John doing? Why is he doing this? Why is he giving us the words that he's giving us? So let's go a little deeper into these purpose statements. Number one, from verse chapter one, verse three, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Purpose number one, then. John is writing for the purpose of Trinitarian Christian fellowship. In other words, John is writing in pursuit of, for the purpose of, the fulfillment, the answer of Jesus' own prayer in John 17. What does Jesus pray? I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. What does fellowship mean? When you have fellowship with one another, there's a oneness, there's a unity. That's what Jesus prays for, and that's what John writes for. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Jesus prays for fellowship, for the believers, for the disciples, and the disciples who those disciples would make to be one with one another, and not just be one with one another, but be one with God himself. John's goal in writing is that according to our baptism, by which we are brought into union with Christ, that we would have union not just with Christ, but with the entire triune Godhead. John writes so that we might participate in the life of God. And in that participation, we would also then participate in the life of the church. It's vertical fellowship with God and it's horizontal fellowship with one another. For John to participate, to engage, to lean in to the life of the church horizontally is to participate, to engage, and to lean into the life of God himself vertically. This is what Paul meant in Romans 12 when he spoke of each individual member of the church. What does he say? We just studied it a couple of weeks ago. Individually members of one another and then members of the head, Jesus Christ. The first purpose statement is also laced with overtones of unity against false teaching. As we will see John also has an eye on false teachers that have infiltrated the church. And so he writes so that these Christians would have confidence that they are in league, in fellowship, in participation with the apostles. What does he say? We proclaim to you so that not so that you might have fellowship with one another, but so that you might have fellowship with us. Your fellowship is with the apostles and your fellowship is with God. That will necessarily exclude false teachers. John is writing to separate the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares. And he does this in the context of unified mutual fellowship between believers one to another and between the church and God. John is writing for the purpose of Joy, fulfillment. We see that in 1.4. These things we write so that our joy might be complete. This is explained more clearly in 3 John, verse 4. There's only one chapter, so you just break 3 John down into just verses. 
John says this in 3 John, I have no greater joy than this than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John is writing so that his children, these believers, would walk in the truth and thereby make his joy complete. John demonstrates the heart of a true pastor here. Anyone who has been assigned the care of souls knows that there is no greater joy than watching those assigned to their care grow in grace and truth. John sets that example here and writes specifically for the purpose of their growth growth in grace and truth so that as these little spiritual children grow, and as we see see that progression there at the end of chapter 1, grow into young men. And then the young men grow into fathers. And that as that growth happens, what does that do for John? It gives him immense joy. We might think of this in terms of earthly parenting. What great joy it is for parents to watch their children grow up. First full night of sleep. The first food from a jar. The first steps. The first day of school. So on and so forth. The growth of children brings great joy to parents, and so also the growth of these Christians brings great joy to John. And he writes with that growth and the joy that comes out of that growth in mind. So, uh, no, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Um, what age would you figure John was at Christ's death, and, and then uh, what age do we know he was at Patmos, and do we ever have any hint of him being married? <clears throat> I would submit, suggestively, because I don't have any data to prove this, that John is probably a little bit younger than Christ. And so if we assume that Christ was about 33 years old when he died, we might say that John is maybe somewhere between like 28 and 30 around the time that Jesus died. Um, and then if we assume that he's, you know, later on that he's in his 90s, you know, we're talking 60 years of difference. We don't know if he was married. I didn't do enough digging to know if there's any sort of church tradition that holds to whether or not John might have been married. It's certainly possible. Um, we just don't know. So, you don't know about most of the disciples. No, there is there is um, some tradition um, about Peter being yes. married. Um, yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. Other than that, we don't really know. We don't have a lot of historical data other than Peter, John, and Paul. We don't have a lot of historical data about we, because we don't really see them appearing. Even in the book of Acts, those are really, it's, it's Peter up to chapter 10, and then chapter 10 it switches to Paul in the book of Acts. And then we can pick up little bits of historical data from their, uh, from their other writings, and then we have to lean into the traditions of the early church, and we go to you know, somebody like Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, and who had written you know, about the end of his life, and that's where we get some of this additional historical data. Um, but there is just a lot that we don't know. And I think that's on purpose. Because I think that the temptation is to, if you know too much about somebody, the temptation is to elevate them. And I think that's the last thing the apostles would have wanted is for us to be obsessed with them and their lives. What they want us to be obsessed with is the Christ that they wrote about. So, anyway. Yeah, Matthew, there's. Matthew is interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Luke is not that much, but. Um, yeah, you, it, at that point, you open the whole door of canon studies. Oh. How, do we, how do we know what books got in and what, did, what ones didn't? Because there's a lot of writings, and there, are, and, and there are a lot of sort of traditionally held books that were written by other people, and we don't know whether or not they're apocryphal, and by apocryphal, we mean like not real. Um, and so there's, there's a ton that goes into that. Um, it's probably beyond the scope of this class, but I'll give you some resources afterwards that you can, that you can do along. Yeah, yeah, no, I get you, I get you.
So number three, John's third purpose. In chapter two, John is writing for the purpose of sanctification. Chapter two, verse one, tells us that he is writing so that these readers may not sin. And once we actually get into chapter two, we'll get into the specifics of what John means. But his point briefly is that he wants these believers and indeed all believers to have an ever decreasing presence of active sin in their lives words, and behaviors. John is concerned to promote holy and lawful behavior amongst those who claim the name of Christ. Then from 2.26, John is writing for the purpose of defending the church against false teachers, those who would come in and deceive the flock of God. Number five, John is writing for the purpose, chapter 5, verse 13, for the purpose of assurance. John wants to infuse in his readers a steadfast assurance of eternal life. This is perhaps the most cited purpose of 1 John, and as Scott has labeled the, the study overall along the themes of authentic Christianity, that's where this comes from. What is it? How can I be assured that I am truly saved, that I am truly a believer? What are the marks, the assuring marks of true Christianity? And that's what 1 John is all about. How can I know that I am walking in the light as he is in the light? And really, John paints a fairly simple picture believe in Christ and then fulfill the law. By loving God and loving your neighbor. And that's the simple version of it. We'll get into it when we get to 5.13. Lastly, I want to deal with some of the themes. These are connected with the purpose, but are a little bit more broad and a little bit more general. And these are some of the points that John hits on. And these are all points that are repeated, that John is hammering home time after time. And if you were listening carefully as I read the text of 1 John you'll hear that certain words and phrases and themes are being repeated over and over and over again. And so I want to draw some of those out here as we come to a close. I want to break this down into three categories. Doctrinal themes. What is Peter trying to teach? Practical themes. Or excuse me, what did I say, Peter? What yeah. John is trying to teach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doctrinal, what John is trying to teach. Practical, what John is trying to get these people to do. And third, polemical, what is John trying to defend them against? So let's see what we see here. Doctrinal, a couple of doctrinal themes, a handful. I, I found, I, I, I put a couple first, and then I found five really good ones that I wanted to key off on. Five key doctrinal themes in 1 John. The first is the doctrine of divine light. The doctrine of divine light. You hear that word over and over and over again in 1 John. Light, light, light. Walking in the light. God is light. Christ is light. Believers walk in the light. We have the light and the life in us and all of these things. John's first major doctrinal declaration in this letter is in Chapter 1, verse 5, and it is this. What does he say? Somebody shout it out. What does he say about God in verse 5? God is light. This is a statement of divine essence. We often think of God in terms of what he does, but what John tells us here is not anything to do with what God does, but who he is. God is light. This statement opens up a Pandora's box of theological implications. Just this one, three words. God is light. And you could talk about that for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. You do a whole theological series and just what it means biblically that God is light. But let's just point out under, we've got cat, the category and then we've got the first part of the doctrine. And we've got three little slices of this that I want to just run past you. God is light means that God is simple. He is, he just 
is light. He is not part light and part other things. We'll see later that John says that God is love. And it's not like God is 50% light and 50% love. God is light and God is love in an absolute sense. God is light means that God is pure. In the very next phrase, John clarifies that in him there is no darkness at all. For God to be light is for him to be absolutely, eternally, and infinitely righteous, holy, and good. And we see that bear out in implications all throughout the book of 1 John as we even hear those phrases, righteousness and goodness. God is light means that God is knowledge. Light is often portrayed as knowledge in the scriptures since light is what makes that which was previously invisible and unable to be seen and understood now able to be seen and understood. For God to be light then is for him to be the source of all knowledge and all truth that exists in the world. And that knowledge and truth also comes to bear on John's writings throughout this letter. A second doctrinal theme that we see is the doctrine of Christ as our high priest. This comes out in the beginning of chapter 2 when John describes Christ as mediator and as propitiation. Drawing on the language of the Levitical, John teaches us about who Christ is as our high priest, both in his eternally satisfactory sacrifice and in his eternal mediation on our behalf before the Father. Number three, we're getting into the depths. Now I'm going to throw a very famous Greek term that you all should know at you right now. The doctrine of homoousius. What do I mean by homoousius? It's a Greek word used by the church fathers who wrote the Nicene Creed to describe the unity of essence between the Father and the Son. And this is, you think, well, gosh, does this really have application or implication for me? Yeah, because there are people today in the church who claim to be Christians and yet say that Jesus is not the divine Son of God. As the Nicene Creed says, true light of true light, true God of true God, light from light eternal. Are Jesus and God the Father the same in their, ascent, in their essence, in their substance? John says yes. And so that Greek word homoousius that you should think about means of the same substance. Jesus and his Father are of the same divine essence, the same divine substance. And that becomes very important for John in this letter. Number four, the doctrine of the beatific vision. This doctrine has fallen out of favor in recent times, but was a favorite meditation of the medieval church. And John teaches it in chapter 3, verse 2. The blessed hope that upon our sight of the glorified Christ, we become like him. As he is light, as he is life. As he has been glorified, we behold him and then we become in a full sense. What do we believe right now about our, about our identity as Christians and as humans? We bear the image of God. But because of the fall, the image is broken. Who is Jesus? The full, true, perfect image of God. When we see him as he is, we become, as Herman Babbage, the Dutch theologian from the beginning of the 20th century said, when we see him, we become truly human. Because that image has been restored. We see him and we are like him. Fifth, the doctrine of divine love. Just as God declared, John declared God to be light in chapter 2, he also declares God to be love in chapter 4. And that brings us right into the practical section because John's key pastoral encouragements in this letter circle around the concept of love. Judith, you had your hand up? Yeah, so this was written in Greek. And in my understanding, mm -hmm. the Greek language has different, or love, has different words. Uh -huh. It depends on what mm -hmm. kind of love the mm -hmm. language is talking about. Yep. So my question is that it's based on a lot of times, obviously. Yeah. You see love because that's 
one of the main mm-hmm. message he wants to get through. Maybe that's mm-hmm. not physical, no matter what we do. So in this passages, what kind of love is the Greek word, Greek, Greek language pointing to? It's it's primarily the two the two principal ones in the in the Bible are agape and phileo. Agape means sacrificial love, phileo meaning brotherly love. I didn't go that deep, but as we get into the text, we'll get into it and we'll see how John makes those distinctions, but they're both here. Um, So those will be the two primary ones, brotherly love and sacrificial love. So five quick practical things that come out of the doctrinal things. If you affirm these doctrines, how should I then live? One, if God is light, then the Christian ought to walk in the light. If Christ is our high priest, we possess an immutable assurance of salvation. Number three, if the Father and the Son are of one essential substance, then we must confess the Son as the only begotten Messiah, eternally begotten of the Father, light of light, True God from true God, begotten, not created. Fourth, if we will be like Christ when we see him in his glory, we must fix our eyes on that hope. Go to chapter 3, verse 3, right after the, when you see him, you'll be like him, verse. Fix our eyes, our hope on him that we might continually be pure and purifying ourselves as he is pure. Fifth, if God is love, then his church must live in that love. Love expressed both vertically to God and horizontally to the brethren. Once we get to chapter four, that's all it's about, starting in verse seven. I had, I had a, I, I, I wish Joshua was here. I have so many memories with him about this particular verse, four, seven, and eight. We had this song that we used to sing in Awana, and I, I was like this close to start singing it. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, and then you clap your hands. Knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John four, seven, and eight. Yeah, we used to sing that song in Awana, and Joshua's dad would lead the song. All of chapter 4 is dealing with this concept of love. Christian love. If God is love and has expressed love to us, principally at the cross of Christ, how then should we live in love? And then, of course, right, he connects the two. You get into later in chapter 4, and he connects very brilliantly obedience of commandments with love. Scribes came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why we see then these three L words that mark the book of 1 John. Light, love, and law. And you might go, law doesn't really fit in there. Yes, it does because if you love God and love others, you fulfill the law. Two polemical issues, two heresies that John is defending the church against here. Two A words. You can write these down. They're important to know because they affect the church today. Number one, antinomianism. What does antinomianism mean? Anti, against, nomos, law. What does that mean? Free grace, license. I've been saved. I've got grace. I can live however I want. The law doesn't matter. Obedience doesn't matter because I've been saved, so I can do whatever I want. That's antinomianism. John weaves this theme throughout, encouraging believers in light of the love that they have received from God, in light of the light that he has shed upon them to walk in the light and walk in love. In obedience to the law. That's the first A, antinomianism. The second A is Arianism. Though John would not have known this heresy by name, we know that we know it by today. He nevertheless speaks to it. 
This is the false teaching that Jesus is not truly God in essence and in substance. John provides in his epistle the foundation, as we mentioned, for the Nicene Creed, part of which we quoted earlier. And John lays the foundation and gives those church fathers the ammunition that they needed to deal with the false teachers of their time. John writes to defend against lawlessness and against those who would deny Jesus as the Christ. Is that the same Arianism as the German Jews? No. Uh, Yeah, the German Arianism is Arian with a Y. This Arianism is Arian with an I named after Arius, the guy who came up with the whole idea that Jesus was not actually God. So two separate things. Same name, different spellings, different ideas. So, what's the secret to 1 John? What's the interpretive key? You want to get the most out of 1 John, what do you need to know? What do you need to get up to your eyeballs in in order to understand 1 John? You want to get piercing insight into everything that John writes. If you want it to become crystal clear, obviously you got to understand him as an author. You got to understand the audience. You got to understand the purpose. You got to understand the themes. If you want the foundation for everything that John writes here, you have to know John's gospel. A robust understanding of John's gospel will open wide the windows of understanding as we seek to think John's thoughts after him in this epistle. Turn with me as we close to John 1. And I just want you to hear the similarities. Hear how what John wrote here impacts what he writes in 1 John. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him and apart from Him nothing has come into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was what? The light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Go back to 1 John 1. What was from the beginning? In the beginning. What was from the beginning? What does he say down in verse 14? John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Go to 1 John. We saw it. We heard it. We looked at it. We touched it concerning what? The word of what? Life. You hear all of these parallels between just four verses in John's gospel. Verse 5. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. The light shines in the darkness. I mean, can you imagine that? John 1.5 and 1 John 1.5 are remarkably similar. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If you want to understand 1 John, you've got to understand John's gospel. And you can keep going. As I, was, as I was reading it aloud to you earlier, I was going, oh, there's John 17. Oh, there's John 16. Oh, there's John 3.16. It's all here. And if you want to understand 1 John, you have to understand the foundation that he laid in his gospel. So... Here's my challenge to you. John's gospel is 21 chapters. John's first epistle is five chapters. I would encourage you strongly, even if you only read two or three chapters a day, read them together. Read John 1, then read 1 John 1. Read John 2, then read 1 John 2. Read John 3, then read 1 John 3. And then once you get to the end of 1 John, start over. John 1, John 6, John, or 1 John 1, John 6. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You know how to do it, Judith. You're on the you're on the Bible reading plan. You know how to do it. You just start over. Keep reading it when you're done. If we understand John's gospel 
the riches of 1 John will come alive to us because we will taste and see uh, the glory of Christ that's put forth in John's gospel that impacts him so profoundly as he writes 1 John. So if you decide you're going to read John's gospel over the next couple of weeks and months where we've plotted the roadmap out to October for 1 John. So if you read John's gospel during that time, I promise you there will be great reward. So next week we'll get into the text and we'll deal with in depth with Pastor Scott this first, these first four verses. A profound and complex introduction that sets the tone for the rest of the book. So I trust that you'll be with us next Thursday as we get into 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Father, we 